Hi, it's good to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay. I'm a part of the team here. So glad you're here at Westgate. I know we got folks in the theater and online. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, before we get into the teaching, just a really quick note about the app. I know it's, like, it's weird when you come to church and there's technical stuff like that. It really is going to help us move forward in, in, a, I think, a much more effective way. A couple of things I want to share. One, I got an email this week from one of you um, thanking me personally for helping us shift to this new app. And this person was already like, man, this is really helpful. And I was really tempted to say, you're welcome. But um, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, so I was like, I shouldn't do that. So I told him the truth, and the truth was I had nothing to do with moving to this app other than saying we should move to a better app. And, um, but uh, several of your staff, several of your pastors and directors here at our church, I can, tell, I can attest, because I was in the trenches with them, worked day and night, overtime, for many months to make this happen. So... Uh, I'm just so grateful to them. So that person who said, yeah, let's give them a hand. Well done. It was a lot of work. The other thing, too, if you're in a life group, your life group uh, page on your app, there's like a little chat. And this is how awesome it is. Jenny, um, I, I'm sitting next to my wife, and I was like, hey, do you have a cough drop? And she didn't have a cough drop. My, my voice is a little raspy. And so she wrote right now, like three minutes ago on the chat in our life group, does anyone have a cough drop? And then my buddy Nick Sakamoto in my life group just walked over and gave me a cough drop. <laughs> so technology, you guys, can change the world. Uh, I'm a child of the 80s. I was a, I was a preteen uh, in the 80s. And in 1989, when I was 10, I think I was in fifth grade, a movie came out that changed American cinema history. And the film was... Back to the Future Part 2. Everybody remember Back to the Future Part 2? Uh, Michael J. Fox, Marty McFly, incredible film, right? Better than the first. Sequels are rarely better than the first. I would say Part 2 is better than Part 1. They're both great. Part 3, whatever. We won't talk about that. that. But Back to the Future 2, incredible. And um, there's a character. So Michael J. Fox plays Marty McFly, who's the protagonist in the film, the main character. And in the film, he has a girlfriend, and his girlfriend is a young woman named Jennifer, played by an actress in part two named Elizabeth Shue. Everybody remember Elizabeth Shue? Okay, Elizabeth Shue. If you were a, a young boy in the 1980s, early 90s, you were in love with Elizabeth Shue. That was you, right? And uh, so me, like most American boys in the 80s and early 90s, I had a crush on Elizabeth Shue. I was like, oh my gosh, she's incredible. Fast forward like 15 years, whatever, you know, it was like childhood, celebrity crush, everybody had them. I am, uh, I'm a youth pastor, I'm in my mid-20s, early to mid-20s, and I'm at a conference, a big, large conference down in Riverside, California. This was back in the day when I used to play a little bit of music, very, I was, I was a, a I was a very mediocre musician, but I was really into it. So I happened to be leading worship at this conference with some friends of mine. And this is so strange, you guys. At some point during that trip, uh, they were all about my age. We all started talking about Back to the Future Part Two. We started talking about Michael J. Fox and Elizabeth Shue. And we're having this conversation. A day or two into the conference, we're staying at this big, giant hotel. Um, a day or two into the conference... Me and my bandmates get into the elevator of the hotel to go up to our room. And there's one person in the elevator when, when like, the four of us get in there. And it's Elizabeth Shue. 
Elizabeth Shue from Back to the Future Part Two is in the elevator. She's a little older, but she, and she's got a bag of baseball bats, aluminum bats. And she's just standing there. And the four of us stare at each other like, is this real life? This is insane. And here's what's so, this is the reason I tell you the story. I could tell that she could tell that we knew exactly who she was. And I'm sure this happens to her all the time that, you know, like people recognize her from Back to the Future and other movies, and yet they're awkward. We were awkward. Like we were all, do we say something? Do we ask for a selfie? Do we leave her alone? And like, I'm like, this, when else am I gonna be in an elevator with Elizabeth Shue? We're, we all chicken out, we say nothing, it gets up to her floor, the door opens, and I say to her, can I help you with your bats? That's what I said to her. And she looked at me with a look of utter disdain and terror. And she said to me, no thank you. And she rushed out of that elevator so fast. And that's my Elizabeth Shoe story, okay. Why do I share this with you? I share this with you because on that day, Elizabeth Shue had a space and time problem. Ironic, because she was you know, in Back to the Future too. But she had a literal, real life space and time problem. What do I mean? There's a reason why elevators are the most, one of the most awkward places on the planet. It's because your physical proximity the space that you share betrays your relational connection. That's why in elevators, it's always awkward, it's always quiet. Everyone, like, if they talk, what do they do? It's like, kind of whisper, right? Why do we do this? Because elevators are awkward. You are not designed, like, in culturally, we do not normally stand that close and share that intimate of a space with people that are complete strangers. And there is a time problem. This is why everybody, did you know that the, um, the closed door button and open door button on elevators, on most elevators, are primarily psychological? They don't actually make the door close faster or, or slow. Did you know that? It's just psychology most of the time. That's why you always have to press it four times before it closes. It, they don't ever work. They're there because they want to alleviate the time pressure you feel. Like, I don't want to be in here with these strangers six inches from them. I need closed door, closed door, right? Open door, open door. Like, you need to get out. Elevators pose a space and time problem. Okay, why do I share all of that with you? In the 1960s, there was a cultural anthropologist named Edward Hall, and he thought about these ideas in a much deeper way, and he developed a field of study called proxemics. And proxemics is a field of study in which um, we think about the congruence or incongruence between our physical proximity and our relational closeness to one another. So let me show you a graphic here. He essentially posed that there are four significant spaces in which humans physically inhabit space. There is uh, intimate space. Um, Edward Hall would say that this is anywhere between less than an inch to 18 inches. 
that you feel comfortable within less than an inch to 18 inches only with people with whom you have a very intimate relationship. And then there's personal space that's about one and a half feet to about four feet. These are people you feel comfortable pretty close to and you have a, a pretty significant personal relationship with them. And then he proposed that there is what he would call social space. And social space is just when you're with acquaintances, coworkers, classmates, maybe when you're at a coffee shop. And social spaces, people with you, whom you have just sort of like uh, a, a sort of social acquaintance level connection, you feel comfortable in spaces between four and 12 feet, right? About that much distance. And then he talks about uh, public space. In large public spaces, humans, at least Americans, feel most comfortable if there's about 12 to 25 feet of distance. This is why when you go to the shopping mall or something and it's holiday season, it's really busy, you just you feel cramped and stuffed and sort of not comfortable, right? Or subways, you know, if you're ever on the East Coast or the L in Chicago or something like that. Now, um, just sidebar... Edward Hall's proxemics, this chart I just showed you, is actually really, it's been really informative, informative for us as a church team, uh, as a staff, as David Kim leads our discipleship and formation um, pathway here. We've actually mapped on some of these spaces to the way we think about how you can belong at our church. So you think about a public space, it's this. Lots of people, social space is like our mid-sized ministries, personal space, our life groups, and then our intimate space, which is really building out. Um, we offer, uh, you know, like mentoring and um, counseling and care and all those sorts of spaces. Now, in modern Western culture, in American culture in particular, betraying our spatial expectations is a serious social faux pas. Right, some of you who um, used to watch Seinfeld, remember the Close Talker episode? Or SNL, there was that sketch many years ago with Steve Martin and Will Forte, where they were like the Close Talkers, you know? It's just, it's funny because it's so ridiculous. We don't do that in our culture today. We need our space. And I think one of the subconscious reasons why so many of us need our space is because we value, as Americans, we highly value freedom of movement. This is something we talk about a lot here, but we live today here in 2023, California, we live in the most individualistic, autonomous culture in human history. Because of this, Physical space, betraying the, like, betraying the congruity of our relationships with physical space is connected to freedom of movement. And one of the reasons why we highly value freedom of movement, not the only reason, but I think one of the reasons, maybe subconsciously for some, is because we live in such a hurried, frenzied, FOMO, fear of missing out, Phobo, fear of better options sort of culture. That's why. It's not the only reason, but it is one of the reasons. There's always something else to do, something more to accomplish, someplace else to be, someone else to see. We have a space and time problem. We need our space and we need no one to infringe on our time. We need freedom of movement, freedom of choice. This is utterly valuable and important to us as Americans. That's not necessarily bad. I'm sharing all of this with you simply to lay the groundwork. 
Our friend John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says that the problem isn't when you have a lot to do. It's when you have too much to do, and the only way to keep up the quota is to hurry. According to some recent research, 66% of American adults admit that they lack work-life balance. 60% of American adults say that they are too busy to enjoy life. That percentage jumps to 74% when it comes to parents with kids under the age of 18. The typical adult in America says that they would need about four extra hours a day to complete everything on their task list. We are overworked, overworked, underrested, always chasing, never arriving. And so it makes logical sense that we would be a people who so fiercely protect our space and our time. Now, uh, for the last year or year and a half or so, we have been slowly marching through this biography of Jesus called the, the Gospel of Matthew. And in recent weeks, we have seen Jesus heal a leper and a Roman centurion servant and Peter's mother-in-law and many demon-possessed people. And today, we arrive at a story in which Jesus doesn't heal, but he speaks truth in the midst of the space and time problem that not only we face, but people faced in the ancient world and have throughout human history. And um, today's text is not so much uh, a resolution or solution or response to the space and time problem. In fact, we're going to get into a little bit of that in a short series we're going to do after Easter called um, Work Hard and Rest Easy, where we'll explore vocation and faith and... Um, and leisure, and rest, and Sabbath, and money, and all those things. Uh, but today's text is actually not a solution or a resolution, but it is an invitation from Jesus to surrender both space and time to him. Let me show you. Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, so a bunch of people are crowding around Jesus and his disciples now, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Pretty cold, right? We'll talk about it in a moment. Now again, Jesus has just spent his evening healing Peter's mother-in-law, and the text tells us many who were demon-possessed. So in many ways, Jesus has surrendered his space and his time for the sake of those in need. You see Jesus doing this over and over again. You also see Jesus taking moments throughout his story to get away from the crowds and to rest but he always rests to spend time with the Father, to be rejuvenated, re-energized, to re-enter the fray, and to again sacrifice his space and his time for the sake of others. But this is one of those moments where Jesus needs rest. The crowds continue to surround him, so he decides to get into a boat with his disciples and cross to the other side of the lake. And then these two men come to Jesus with a request. They want to go with Jesus. Matthew in, includes this highlight um, to, 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 to make key points about what it means to follow Jesus. One theologian puts it this way. Matthew mentions Jesus' decision to leave Capernaum 
Apparently to escape from the growing crowds, a frequent necessity in Jesus' Galilean ministry. And this decision inevitably results in a separation of his true followers who will accompany him from less committed supporters. And thus, Matthew introduces in verses 19 to 22, two case studies illustrating the demands of committed leadership. What does committed leadership to Jesus require of us? We've quoted Bonhoeffer this line many times here at our church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To be a disciple of Jesus, to apprentice to Jesus, to learn and live the way of Jesus means surrendering, dying to your self-perceived ownership of your own space and time. Let me show you. First, verses 19 to 20. A teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is Jesus' way of saying, you understand if you follow me, you're going to be an itinerant, um, impoverished disciple uh, living a transient life. I have no home. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, even though Jesus had sort of a home base in Capernaum, Because he and his disciples traveled so much, they were essentially homeless, living at the mercy of the hospitality of others. And this teacher of the law, most likely a scribe who was a a local religious leader, wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus makes clear to him that what's required to follow is to surrender the comforts of space. So that is the question for us today. Many of us love to show up and sing the songs and listen to a 35-minute sermon, and we feel good, we get inspired, we walk out those doors and live our life. And maybe you're early in your faith journey, maybe you're just exploring, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're just here because for whatever reason a friend or family member or coworker invited you. If that is you, I am thrilled you're here. And I'm not saying if you're not doing this, then you're out. No, you are welcome here. But for the many of us in this room who say, no, Jesus is real, he is my Lord, my Savior, that song we sang, my shelter, my shepherd, my Savior, King. If that is Jesus to you, if you want that line you sang to be true, then what he demands is a surrendering of your space, a willingness to surrender the comforts of space to follow him. Here's the thing. Most of us will not be called, not all of us, some of us will be called to this. Most of us, however, will not be called by Jesus to literally give up our physical living situations to follow him. Some will. I mean, we have tons of global ministry partners, missionaries all over the world who Jesus called them to do exactly that, and they said yes. They surrendered the comforts of space and moved to some country that was not their own to take the gospel there, and we applaud them, and we are so humbled to partner with them. That might be some of us in this room, but most of us, Jesus is not going to call us to do that. So then what does it mean to surrender the comforts of space if it doesn't mean leaving my physical house and then following Jesus out into the unknown? It means surrendering the comforts of your space. Um, You know, this Friday, actually, 
I'll show you a graphic here. We have an info dinner. I'm not trying to pitch this dinner on you. I'm just sharing this with you as an example. We have an info dinner here this Friday at 6.30 p.m. Um, for foster and adoption ministry. Because there are many of us in this room who are foster parents. And I know, because I know personally, I've spoken to some of you, you have said yes to the call to care for the unloved children in our city because you believe Jesus has called you to do that. I have friends who foster, and it is an utter surrender of the comforts of their space. I've heard stories, heartbreaking stories, of how um, volatile it can get when you take in a child that nobody else wants. That's what it looks like to surrender space. I see my friend John Christian right here who hosts Indian exchange students who come here to study and they have no family. They have no relational connection. The Christians open their home. That's not comfortable for them. It's not easy. It takes time. It takes sacrifice. That's what it looks like to surrender space. I look around this room and I see dozens and dozens of life group leaders who surrender the space of their home to host dozens of people every week or every two weeks to tidy up the house and prepare a few drinks and some snacks. That's not easy. You're all busy. There's a million other things you could do on a Wednesday night when you're done working your 10-hour job and you come home. It would be easier. It would be far more convenient for you to have a glass of wine, have some dinner, turn on the TV and watch a movie. And dozens upon dozens, in fact, in our church, we have over 200 life group leaders who sacrifice space week after week, not because it's easy, but because they believe this is a part of what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like for many of us to surrender the comforts of space to follow Jesus. Rosaria Butterfield writes this, those who live out radical, ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs, but all, uh, not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with a house key. I have a dear friend here on our staff who moved with his young family from a really small living situation to a house with lots of open space. And we went to visit them and we're celebrating God's provision in their life. And you know what the first things they said to me? They started rattling off ideas on how they could leverage the space to create opportunities for many in our church to belong. That's not comfortable. It would be far more comfortable to say, wow, we got this great new house and our kids have tons of room to run. Whew, thank God. But the first place their heart and mind goes is how do we give up this space for the sake of others in the name of Jesus? So how is God asking you? How is Jesus calling you to surrender the comforts of your space? And then... Following Jesus demands surrendering the convenience of time. Let me show you. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. That's a reasonable request. And then Jesus just comes off like a jerk here. Jesus says, uh, dude, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. This is really cold. 
on the surface, correct? In fact, this verse, has, has, it has messed a lot of people up. So let's talk about it for a moment. At the time, when a patriarch in a Jewish family would die, there would be literally within the hours after that patriarch's death, an immediate mourning ceremony. Remember, these are not, people are not living in giant cities where you have to drive 45 minutes to get from you know, Gilroy to San Francisco or something. That's not the situation. All communities are localized. Even in the bigger cities, you are within walking distance of everybody else in your local community, and your entire life is basically hinged on this local community. Because of this, it was very possible, and it was common practice, that when, a patri- when the patriarch of a family would die, immediately in that town or city, all of the people would gather as a means of communal support, and there would be immediately, within the hour, there would be a mourning ceremony. The funeral procession would take place literally within hours of death. And a bereaved son, had a father just recently died, a bereaved son would not have the time to go follow around a Jewish rabbi named Jesus and ask him these sorts of questions. So for a week after the father's death, the family would remain in mourning together. This is actually still a common Jewish practice called sitting shiva. And at the time, the eldest son of a family would actually visit the father's tomb on the one-year anniversary of the father's death to do what is traditionally known as a reburial ceremony. Why do I share all of this with you? This man who asks Jesus, hey, I want to follow you, but can I go bury my father first? It reads in English like this man's dad just died, and Jesus is saying, who cares, man? He's already dead. Let's go. That is not what's happening here. In fact, the spoken language at the time was Aramaic. You know this. We've talked about this before. And in Aramaic, the phrase, first let me go and bury my father, can just as easily mean, let me wait until my father passes so that I could bury him. What is happening in this story, almost all scholars agree, is not that this man's father has just recently passed away and this man needs to carry out his family responsibility and take care of all of the stuff for the father's burial and then go follow Jesus. That's not what's happening here. What is happening here is one of two things. Either this man's father is still alive and the man is saying, I really wanna follow you, I'm all in, but let me, can I just wait until he dies? Or... This man has already passed away. This man's father has already passed away a year earlier probably. And this man wants to go do the reburial ceremony before he follows Jesus. So Jesus is not saying your dad just died. I understand, but who cares about your dad? Come follow me. What Jesus is saying to this man is, listen, I understand it inconveniences your schedule and your plan to follow me now but that's what it takes. That's what it takes. This would-be disciple is essentially asking to get his family affairs in order before he commits to following Jesus. 
But Jesus makes something startlingly clear here. Following Jesus is based on his timing, not ours, meaning that it will inconvenience us when it comes to time. I mean, how many moments and opportunities have we missed because of our hurry? Because my time is so precious. Like a year ago, I was at a birthday party. Um, uh, My daughter's friend had a birthday party, and it was at a park. And there were some church friends there, and then there were friends who um, were friends of the family, but unchurched. And I struck up a conversation at that birthday party uh, with a gentleman who lives here in Silicon Valley and is not a Christian. It was, he's clearly not a Christian. And I told him I'm a pastor. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. And he just shared with me, I'm not religious. I don't know. You know so, and at the end of that conversation, I said to him, well, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll see you again sometime soon. And he said to me, as I love this about his personality, he said to me, he's like, yeah, let's be honest, probably not. <laughs> We're probably not going to see each other, right? And he didn't mean like, I don't like you. He meant like, We're just here because of this, and we're having a nice conversation, but that's it. So I remember I was like, yeah, he's probably right. I probably won't ever see him again. And I didn't like, you know, there wasn't an opening in the conversation for me. Like, also, have you considered Christ? Do you want to come to church? I I was looking for that, but it didn't happen. So I was like, okay, well, you know, hopefully we'll pray for him. Hopefully he comes to know Jesus somehow, some way. Months later, I'm at Target, and it's the holiday season. And um, this is embarrassing to admit to you. This was the week leading up to our Christmas Eve services. And for weeks I had been praying, Lord, would you bring many who are far from you to our Christmas Eve services? And would you meet them there and draw them close to you? I had been praying this over and over. And I had been praying, Lord, would you give me opportunity to seek out those who are far from you in my life and invite them so that you might encounter them and transform their lives? And then one night, I'm doing a Target pickup, and I'm, um, I did the drive-up thing, but it wasn't working. They were so busy, so I had to walk in, and I'm uber frustrated at this point. I'm so busy. I walk in, I'm like, you know, like the, I'm a pastor. I'm like, where's my Target order, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and these, like, 18-year-old Target kids were like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I felt so bad. So then they're like going in the back and they're looking for their target order and, I'm, and they've, I wait like 20, 30 minutes and I am so hurried, so frenzied, so frustrated, so rushed at this point. They finally bring my order out and I turn around to leave and to rush out to my car because I got to get to the next thing, right? And I turn around and I see this man that I had met months earlier. And I've been praying for weeks that God would draw many far from him to Christmas Eve. I see him out of the corner of my eye. He's waiting for his order. And I sense everything in my being, put everything down and go talk to him and invite him to Christmas service. So you know what I did? I ran to my car and drove to my next appointment. And I am so ashamed. Not because God shames me, but because I could not allow the Spirit of God to inconvenience my schedule. I had to prepare a sermon to save many souls. 
I don't have time to invite an actual human soul. I have to sit in front of my Google Doc to save souls. Right? How stupid. But the reason I can share that story with you confidently is because I know I'm not alone. In the Silicon Valley, we worship our time like it is God himself. We are so busy. We're so rushed. We're so frenzied. You are so important. There is so much to do. How will society continue if you don't make it to that next appointment? Like we are so in this mad rush of if I am not on time, if I'm not on top of it, if I don't scrape every minute, every hour, every second out of my day, how will anything get done? We have bought that lie, hook, line, and sinker so deeply that we miss opportunities in which God is asking us to inconvenience our time, to surrender our time to him so that he might do the stuff no one else can do. I missed an opportunity like that this past Christmas. In fact, as I was preparing for this sermon, I've been asking the Lord, like, would you give me a redemptive opportunity? Like, can I meet him again at a target this week so that there's this awesome ending to the story? And it has not happened. But here's what I can tell you. If and when I run into him again, I will stop just about anything I'm doing. I promise you that. I'm going to ask Mark and the team to come back up, and we're going to sing and respond together. You know, Mark mentioned earlier keeping our hearts and our minds open for those in crisis in our lives, those on a quest in our lives. This is what it looks like to live a listening life, to live an invitational life. I want to invite you to do that. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of strength. It takes a sacrificial spirit. I get it. I don't mean to belittle everything on your plate. I know you are swamped. I know that you are. I know it. But what would it, what would it look like for you and for me to live listening for the Spirit of God as he moves and compels us toward those far from him? and living an invitational life. Certainly that looks like inviting friends and family and coworkers and classmates to Easter service, but it doesn't end on April 9th. And it doesn't just mean inviting them to a church service, although that would be wonderful. It means living a totally invitational life, inconveniencing, giving up the comforts of your space, giving up the comforts and convenience of your time. So are there any areas in your life where you are saying right now to Jesus, not here, not now? Ask yourself that question, honestly. Is there a part of your life, your schedule, your home, what your energy, your resource, whatever it might be, is there a part of your life where you are looking Jesus in the face and you are saying to him, not, Jesus, not, not here. Like over there, but not here. Or Jesus, not now. Not, I have to write a sermon. I don't have time to have this conversation. Not right now, maybe later. Ask yourself that question. 
I'm here, I'm a follower of Jesus because men and women surrendered their space and their time to follow Jesus. I've shared this story before, but in my early 20s, I had sort of deconstructed faith and there was a small group of guys at the church where I grew up and they invited me on Monday nights to spend time in one of their homes for hours. I mean, every Monday I was there for four, five, sometimes six hours. They would give up their space. The, the guy who, whose home we met in, he was newly married. And every Monday his wife would leave. Like she'd be like, okay guys, have fun. They literally gave up their space and their time. God saved me through God saved me through their sacrifice of space and time. But I also noticed the joy that it gave them. And it's why I got into pastoral ministry. It's why I'm still in pastoral ministry. Because I really believe that when God gets a hold of a people and moves in and through them, that other people's lives change. I see that in every single one of us in this room. What would it look like if the four or 500 of us here and whoever else is watching online or in the theater, what would it look like if we become a people who today say, Jesus, my space is yours. My time is yours. Whatever you want to do, whoever you want to reach, however you want me to serve, it is yours. You, you can have it all. You can have my stuff, my space, my home, my time, my resources, my energy. You can have my mind, my heart. It's yours. What might God do? Not just this Easter, but in the years and decades to come. So as we think about that question, as an act of surrender, let's stand and sing together. Lord, have my heart. And sing it only if you mean it. And if you don't, it's okay. Just listen. Let's stand and sing together.